0: Well, as I've been saying for the last four years or so, we are being transitioned from an analog, physical, real world, and into a digital, surreal simulacra that bears no resemblance to the original. It is a gradualistic change. It is evolving. So, when you hear the term... Progressive World Order, or Liberal World Order, or the previously fashionable New World Order, you normally think that our world is going to go from pure constitutional sovereignty to a giant communist globalization overnight. And I hope, over the course of today's program, to explain why that is not the case. And at the same time, explain how things normally move in stages. And... This is why our current insurrectional situation has come in stages. And if you think that most of what you are experiencing right now is something that just happened due to COVID in 2020, well, I can help you to break through your cognitive dissonance. And in a future episode, I will try to break down how we got from where we were just after World War I, and as we progress past World War II and Reconstruction, and then Bretton Woods I the development of UNESCO and the United Nations, the development of supranational non-governmental organizations like Bilderberg, the Council on Foreign Relations, the World Council of Churches, and then Bretton Woods II, which led to the Trilateral Commission, the World Economic Forum, the Asia Society. But the globalist plan for what insiders refer to as the New World Order, which is basically a global government controlled by themselves – begins with submerging the sovereignty of nation-states into regional orders. You can understand these as regional governments built using free trade deals as the foundation, with the European Union serving as the premier example. Now, how do we know this is the plan? Because top deep-state globalists have said so publicly and repeatedly, and because that is the exact strategy being pursued openly. In other words, you don't have to be with me in smoky back rooms at the Wilson Center and in secured hotel boardrooms over the past 50 years. It has all been in the public domain, with quite a bit of information being accessible, or at least it used to be, by the general public. But we were distracted by the weekend football games, let's say, or by Instagram, or whatever distractions could be thrown our way to keep us from paying attention to what was being done to us all over the world. Pseudo-free trade agreements and other sovereignty-shredding schemes are being used to transfer more and more power to transnational bureaucracies and courts. And eventually... These regional orders will be interwoven into an overlapping patchwork of multilateral regimes on the road to creating a truly global authority under the United Nations in a public-private partnership with the World Economic Forum. At least that is the globalist plan. And that is why you have had leader after leader after leader being influenced in some way by the World Economic Forum over the past 30 years. There has been the growing of, if you will, a team of people that would be then seeded into governments throughout the world to penetrate the cabinets, as Klaus Schwab would say. But it is starting to show major cracks now amid historic public backlash in the recent years since 2020. And thank you, I'd like to say that uh, I've been a part of that backlash, preparing people Uh, to be able to understand what is actually happening around them. Now, I did begin to warn about these things in 2017, but much of it was hard to imagine in a world that valued individual liberty and freedom of speech, at least it pretended to. As I have discussed and written about before, the majority of what we would call the formation of the systematic theology behind our current global structure can be traced back to Rousseau and then in great part to Hegel and his idealized vision of the state, then as envisioned by Marx, as we had discussed in our last episode. And without any doubt, the British Fabians had quite an influence on what would be eventually the globalist form of socialism that is prevalent in our current Great Reset model. And this is why my very first presentation that I ever gave for Sovereign Nations in the summer of 2017 was on Fabian socialism. And the primary purpose of the Fabian Society was to reach the goals of socialism through evolutionary or parliamentary processes, and to avoid a bloody revolution or an armed struggle. A large number of the 19th century intellectuals of Britain were the founders of Fabian socialism, and at the top of the list, of course, was G.D.H. Cole. And besides Cole, there was Sidney Webb, Beatrice Webb, And, of course, the brief inclusion of H.G. Wells. And then the demon of Fabianism, George Bernard Shaw. Now, it's important to note that the Fabian socialists did not favor the revolutionary methods of Marx for setting up socialism. They believed that the parliamentary methods would produce far better results. And maybe they just didn't have a stomach for it. Well, this can be better said in the words of G.D.H. Cole, who stated the following, quote, I am not a communist, but a good Fabian socialist, precisely because I fear that a communist revolutionary, by sweeping away too much, would enthrone in the minds of the new generation the iron spirit of the mass-producing machine, whereas a milder socialist revolution could bring to the control of the machine the liberal spirit that values difference and reckons suffering at a high rate in the scale of things to be put down, end quote. So it's clear from Cole's observation that he had no quarrel with the objectives of revolutionary socialism. His objection is against the methods of revolutionary socialism. The primary method of this variety of socialism is armed struggle and violence. Now, a large number of reasonable people, Cole and his associates claim, had strong apathy against violence. Now, you would see this, I think, in in a great example of something that Dr. Lindsay and myself have both discussed, which would be the difference between the old Hegelians and the new Hegelians. Old Hegelian camp, of course, would be those that would be opposed to a violent, immediate struggle. And the young Hegelians are for the revolution. So that's where I think you would see the main difference between the two. And I think as well, you could see that manifested here in the United States through the Republican Party that would be part of the rhinos that are for the same globalist move that the young Hegelians and the Democrats would now want to see. So Fabian Socialism, though, and the British Fabian Socialism, envisages a complete restructuring of society. And the restructuring relates to the economic, political, and social systems. So the socialists, especially the Marxists, thought of capturing the state power, because in their judgment, it was the instrument of exploitation. But the Fabians did not see or treat the state in that light. They felt the necessity of state, and it was the ultimate arbiter of all disputes. So, the powers shall be rested in the hands of state, and it would have no opportunity to exercise it arbitrarily. But another program of the Fabian Socialist is that economic power should be so restructured as to reduce the economic inequalities among classes and people to a minimum and tolerable level. So Fabian's advocacy for nationalization of key industries really shouldn't surprise you. That's happened both in the United Kingdom and now is starting to happen in the United States. That's why they break things such as food processing, such as the automobile industry, such as other things. And they say, well, the state can come in and we can begin to subsidize these things. Well, that is the public-private partnership that you obviously never want to see. But they did not support the management of the entire economy by the state, which is pretty much what you're seeing now. Fabian programs also include the spread and propagation of socialist ideas and ills of unbridled capitalism among the masses of men. Without this, the Fabians believed that setting up of socialism or implementation of poverty-reducing programs would never be possible. So the functions of the state would be to improve the conditions and make way for the advent of socialism and not really to curb freedom in the beginning. That's how things start. But Fabian Socialism's plan was to transfer the rent and wealth from the lands of the minority to the hands of the general public, which means the elimination of private property. Now, the Fabians fully realized the ills of what they would examine as capitalism, but they didn't necessarily want total abolition of capitalism. Rather, they preferred a chained capitalism, if you will, more or less – a stakeholder version of capitalism. And Fabian Methodology then believes that the controls of the state or parliament over the economy shall be ensured to stop the development of aberration or maybe someone jumping ahead too much and getting too much success, especially when it comes to private individuals. So the main difference between revolutionary socialism and evolutionary socialism rests in the method of setting up socialist society. And so this is why we would say that Fabian socialism, which is really what you would call the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, that's really how it started. The Labour Party was part of the Fabian socialist movement, as was the London School of Economics. Well, that is a branch or form of evolutionary socialism. And it believes that mainly through the slower process of parliamentary processes of the way that we get to things through democracy, or what now they're calling our democracy, that's how their socialist goals can be achieved, because you're willing to go along with it. You're willing to believe the propaganda that they're putting forth. So the parliamentary processes denotes basically a universal franchise, a periodic election, a, a vote, and to, and to send representatives through elections, to stand for the people and what the people want, then to enact law by parliament, and then it further means that a parliament will make new law specifying the working hour wages of the laborers, or maybe the health conditions of the laborer, and the amount of profit and other details which the industries must strictly follow. So that's where you get into hyper-regulation. Those are the things that the Trump administration will look to start to pull back on to try to give freedom to the corporations, freedom to private enterprise. Little did he know, though, that private enterprise was already involved in a public-private partnership, which they were beginning to follow these methodologies of the Fabian socialists. But any aberration from the rules that are laid down in this process will be, of course, followed by severe penalties – there would also be democratic methods of changing the entire society. So now, we're not just going to look at what's happening economically, but now we're going to talk about what's happening throughout society and culture, and they will use the same processes to achieve those goals. So evolutionary socialists were optimistic about the founding of socialism through these democratic methods, and how then, especially when you take a look at the idea of creating a cultural Marxism, a cultural change in what needs to break apart in terms of the pillars of our society, well, that is basically irresistible to those that would be in this Fabian methodology, is how you do that, how you can achieve those things. The Fabianism, though, isn't strictly than dedicated to one particular systematic theology as strict Marxism is, it's able to absorb other ideas that are good ideas, that are things that you should implement without losing the center and the goals that they have. So as new ideas come along, if you want to think of it as gain, gain of function maybe, uh, that you become better and better at creating that evolutionary process because change is part of that evolutionary process as long as the goal is the same. So while the Fabians did not oppose what was happening in Russia in 1917, the Leninist, Socialist, and then the Stalinist version of revolutionary struggle, they weren't opposed to that, but they basically saw that armed struggle or violence could possibly ensure temporary benefit or relief in terms of being able to get to where they want to get to. But in the long run, a revolution may cause disastrous results such as it may destroy the good or normal relations among various peoples, that those people might begin to lose trust in the process, and then it would cause havoc. It also could destroy your infrastructures, which is against what the ideal would be. Because Fabians, and as well the socialists, remember they're not very good at creating things themselves. They are good— at building upon the hard work and the innovation of others, hence why you see things happening in China. And everything that happens within China is pretty much not due to Chinese innovation, but due to American or Western innovation, which is then stolen and implemented by the Chinese Communist Party. So in gradualism, there really is no place for that abrupt, hard, fast change which is why when you look at what's happened now within the Great Reset, you would say that that's almost a Leninist move, which is curious because when you take a look at Klaus Schwab, he's been seen several times on Zoom calls where he has a bust of Lenin behind him. So you would see that there is an attempt to then create that spark, that revolutionary moment. But the socialists will proceed then step by step, and in every step, people will participate in the gigantic task now of building upon the foundation of the successes of capitalism to build that socialist society. So the workers, then, would fight for the extension of democratic rights until there's no work. That was the whole purpose. So at that point, the need for ethnic or identity structures to the struggle for the communist utopia would be necessary. Because the idea, of course, is, you know, by your work you shall be set free. That was the reason why you had a hammer and sickle. Remember that the hammer and sickle of communism is basically their idea of a cross. That is what shall set you free, or that's where your salvation lies. But in this sense, what you're doing is, the idea is that you will work for these things, you must do the work, and then on the other side of that work is the freedom of which there is no more work. But the study of history, of social development, Marx formed basically the conclusion that in every epoch of time, he would say that there were two main classes in society. One was the exploiting class, and the other was the exploited class. So the first, the exploiting class, was numerically small, like we would call them the 1% now, right? But economically powerful. And the latter, the exploited, was numerically big, but economically weak. And because of the material reasons, there was always conflicts between the two opposite classes, and the conflict reached then the zenith in the industrial society when the class structure assumed clear forms. So the economically powerful class, by its position to control the economy, also controlled the policies in the state. So that's what they are stating, is that because you have the 1% that is the powerful class, they're the ones that actually control everything and control the policies which then oppress the rest of the 99%. And that is where Marx and Engels started thinking about emancipation. And for their understanding of emancipation, devised a system or a type of society which would be able to emancipate the common people, that 99%, from this exploitation of the 1%. So, a very important element of Marx's theory of socialism, of course, as we've discussed many times, is dialectical materialism. And this brings up a word that both Dr. Lindsay and I have been focusing in on for a number of years, and that would be the dialectic, the transformational alchemy of the is to the ought, or when you're getting from what was, what ought to be into the is, I think you could say. The dialectic is defined basically as the theory of the union of opposites, So, the term was originally used, the dialectic, was originally used by the Greek philosophers, and it was largely used and popularized by Plato, who used it in debate between him and his disciples. But Hegel used the concept to explain the world spirit, or zeitgeist, and Hegel believed that history amounted to the unfolding of the world spirit. And according to Hegel, world spirit moves through thesis which means the proposition. And then the antithesis denies, in Hegelian terms, negates, and synthesis embraces the truth, which is contained both in thesis and antithesis. That's the synthesis. So the Hegelian dialectic was used not only to explain spirit, it was also then explaining idealism. But Marx rejected Hegel's application of the dialectic to idealism, but accepted the central idea of the dialectic, that is, thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. And as well, Engels saw a difference between the Hegelian dialectic and a Marxian dialectic. The old dialectic looked upon the previous history as a crude heap of irrationality and violence, and it discussed the movement of ideas from one stage to the next stage it ignored the fact that there could not be any idea without matter. So at first there was matter and then this created an idea or impression in the mind of man. So then applying this dialectic to the study of society and its stages of development, Marx basically said that originally, that is the communist society, there were no classes in such a society in the account of Marx was the thesis. Then the emergence of classes led to the division of society into opposite classes. That resulted, of course, in class conflict. This was due to the clash of interests between the classes. And then this is the antithesis. And then through class struggle, the proletariat class will capture state power and then abolish class structure and finally establish a classless society which then would be the eventual synthesis. Now, for those of you taking notes, this is what those involved with the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and the Fabians believe that we are entering into a last-stage process of synthesis. And this last stage has been constructed and vision, logistically planned for decades, all for this moment in history. And so if we were to go back, the study of history starting from primitive communism, unfolds the interesting fact that the social development evolves from one stage to another, and it has reached, in Marx's time, the industrial society, and he was there during the Industrial Revolution. But according to Marx, this is not the final stage because the industrial society contains the seeds of conflict, which is the stage of antithesis. And so this stage can never be the ultimate stage of social development until and unless synthesis stage is reached, the dialectic would go on from one stage to a higher one and on and on. So in Marx's account, communism is the final phase of social progress and when society would then reach that final phase of dialectic that will stop at least for a time. And in the stage where we are reaching now, a sustainable socialism, at least according to Marx and Engels, is an intermediate phase between capitalism and communism. So from the analysis of Marx, we come to know that the arrival of socialism, as well as communism, in his process, in his eschatological process, is inevitable. This inevitability is a doctrine, then, that is necessary in the systematic theology of Marxism. Inevitability. Now, if you recall, if you've been listening to my podcast for a number of years, you will remember that one of the things that I was told back in 2009, 2010, and so forth in different settings was that there's a change coming, that there's nothing you can do to stop it. And either you can get on board with us and be a part of it, but if you oppose us, things won't be good for you. That was the inevitability. It's this idea that this is inevitable, it's going to happen, there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's the same thing, unfortunately, that Kissinger was telling people for years and years and years, it's inevitable we're going to come here, there's nothing we can do to stop it. That's a reflexive statement, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But inevitability. Uh, In this inevitability, again is derived from a hermetic understanding of alchemy through reflexivity or pygmalionism. We've talked about this so many times. And Rousseau understood this. And Fabian Marxist George Bernard Shaw understood this. And this is why both Rousseau and Shaw both composed musical narrative story plays that are titled Pygmalion, which then in Shaw's later renditions was named My Fair Lady, making the ought to be to the is, the process of societal alchemy. In an industrial society, the progress cannot stop. So we were going through this process of perfection with the dialectic. This is what people would refer to as the Overton window, continuing to move gradualistically. Because in the theology of Marxism, only a communist society, the eventual utopia, is perfect. So in this sense, it is theonomic in its insistence. So Marx has said that through socialism and later on communism, he would say that these things were inevitable. But in this inevitability, this does not mean that workers and socialists have nothing to do. They have to be about building the utopian kingdom. A utopian, pure communism that evolves the human species, perfects the human species, in similar but in a distorted way that christians believe that they will be perfected in the eternal kingdom in the heavenlies imputed by the holy spirit the indwelling of the holy spirit their minds shaped and molded by the indwelling presence of christ and the elect of course will be transformed into eternal worship with Christ without the presence of sin. But in the Marxist envisionment of utopia, there will be imputation as well. Imputation not by and through the Holy Spirit, not by putting on the mind of Christ, but by creating the Internet of Things, And by the imputation of a world-connected grid of cerebral implants, transforming humanity, guiding humanity, helping humanity to think the right thoughts all the time. The right thoughts that will make humanity compliant, compliant to the collective good of transhumankind. And man will not rebel against the will of the global brain, because man's thought will always be perfectly in synchronization with the mind of the new supranational state. You see, communism isn't going to fail this time, if this happens, because there will be no one to rebel against it. That is the goal. And the Fabians, through their civilized discourse and gradualistic ideals, as opposed to the revolutionary acceleration of the more incendiary Marxists, well, the Fabians, much like today's Republican Party globalists, are for the gradual move towards the inevitable. But the inevitable is only inevitable if we allow it to be from a human perspective. But with reflexive statements and the mass psychosis of millions in leadership thinking that this Marxist future must be inevitable, well, they all press forward in lockstep. Those that are in the political realm, in the corporate realm, in the religious realm, in the educational realm, all participating in pushing this towards the inevitable. But it doesn't need to be. But anyone who is in their way will be dismissed as a Nazi, a tyrant. Even though the Fabians are directly responsible for many of the eugenics inspired ideas of the Third Reich. Isn't that so bizarre? Even though what is being ushered in now is a raw form of interventionism, national socialism, with an enviro-communist bent as we surge into socialism and as we spiral toward complete conformity, global conformity, utopian communism— Because that is the eschatological future that this insipid cult has in store for us. And if you haven't started to think about how you will respond, well, you should. And it better be effective. Locally, regionally, nationally. And you can join us at Sovereign Nations as we fight to reclaim the faith, the nation, our institutions, and humanity itself. And we could use your help, and we could use your support, because now is the time to start sharpening our knowledge. It is time to sharpen our rhetoric. It is time to defend our families, our institutions, and our nation, because we must win. I'm Michael O'Fallon. And this has been Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic.